23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Before this whole account in the Bible of David's life is brought to an end, and David will kind of go home to be with the Lord in the first early couple of chapters of First Kings, which we'll get into next week, not next week, but the week after that. Gail Irwin will be here speaking next Sunday night. And before the end of David's life occurs, God wants to make sure that we are introduced to men that are on the basis of verse 8, commonly known as David's mighty men. They were the men that helped David become the great leader that he was, helped him be successful in his calling and in his ministry. There are very, very few people. There are some people who are in the service to the Lord. They're very much loners, and uh, they kind of do it on their own. Elijah was one of those people. But for the most part, when God calls us to do something, and certainly on the level that he called David to do something, he surrounds him with a team of people. And the David gets most of the recognition this side of heaven. There's nothing that we do in support of somebody else in the advancement of the kingdom of God, whether it's supporting a missionary or praying for a missionary or whatever it might be, where they are the person that gets seen and we're hardly seen at all. God takes note of all of it. And he makes sure that one day we'll be rewarded for our place in the success of other people's ministries. And so here is David, and before his life is over, God want, wanted us to be introduced to the men that helped him become great, and he couldn't have become as great as he was in God's calling without their help. God had called not only David, but he had touched their hearts to come alongside David in order to help him be successful as the greatest king in the history of Israel next to Jesus who was coming in order to take the highest place as a king in, in Israel's history. We're told that many of these men uh, joined themselves to David decades earlier when David was fleeing from King Saul and in the cave of, of Adullam and uh, he's out in the Judean wilderness and uh, these men were told were discontented uh, they were in debt and they were also in danger. So it's not like you say, hey, listen, uh, we need to hire about six guys to put in uh, on, on uh, the, you know, for, for the business. Let's find uh, some, a bunch of guys that are in debt and uh, in danger and discontented. But God did that because David was a nobody from no place, really. And, and God made him great and knew that how he could use him. And God took these men and in the condition that they were in, he allowed them to see something great in David, something that of God in David, that they wanted to follow David and see where this ride with God was going to end up. And so the Lord touched their hearts to uh, join uh, with him. And so we're told in the parallel passage in First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 10, Now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And so they had a great part in his success, and God wants us to know that as things are winding down now for David. This list of his mighty men 
is made up of three lists. There's a list of three that were the elite of the elite, the top three. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands of men in his, in his military. And here were the top three. And then there was a second level of three that didn't quite attain to the top three. Tells you what these top three were like. And then below that, there was, there's a listing here of 30, 37 men who didn't make the top two categories, but they would have been, spirit, they would have been special forces in any military uh, in the world. And so these are the, men's of, the names of the mighty men whom David had. Uh, and this first one is Josheb, Joshebeth, and so, or Basib. Uh, Basabeth. So if you have a problem with his name, you take it up with him. I don't think you'll want to when you find out. And he was a Tachmanite, chief among the captains. So here you have a guy. You're talking about among all the captains. Among the, this is a leader among leaders. This is a man who's great in the context of greatness. I can't wait to see these guys someday. And he was called a dino, the Esnite. A dino is a little easier to say, so I think people got it. You know, quick in battle, you've got to say, hey, a dino can't be going, uh, Josheb Bashabeth. You'd be dead by the time you did it. So. so he's also known as a dino because he had killed 800 men at one time. Killed 800 men in one battle at one time against the Philistines. Philistines were the ongoing enemy of the children of Israel. And they had come into the land to slaughter the Jews and to destroy God's plan for David's life and also for the life of the children of Israel. And during one attack, a dino rose up to fight before the battle was over. 800 men lay dead at his feet. 800 men. So we're talking about something supernatural here. He didn't have like, you see some science fiction movie or something where some... Uh, weapon of the 21st century lands in his hands and he can take out 800. We're talking about swords and spears and hand-to-hand combat. So it's supernatural, just like God gave David, I mean, uh, gave Samson a supernatural ability to kill the Philistines. And so he just really one, one tough guy. When you look at Adino's life, he was willing to stand for God as a line of defense between God's people and their enemy in the face of impossible odds. He was a man who was just willing to, to make a stand for God, even when you would look at the situation and say, it doesn't, it's no use. Why would anybody do it? The odds are humanly impossible. And then a dino looks at that and says, That's not my problem. What is humanly possible or not possible humanly or what is possible with God or all of these kinds, that's not his issue. His issue was to be what God had called him to be in that circumstance. Whether it was humanly impossible or not, to make that stand and then it was God's responsibility to then show himself strong on behalf of this man that was making a stand for God and his people and do what God alone could do. And that's what Adino did. He made a stand in, for God in circumstances that others would just view as humanly 
impossible. Absolutely fearless. Now, as Christians, our warfare, of course, is very different than the warfare that Adina was in or these men that fought with David. That was a physical battle. They did it for David. We fight for the son of David. We fight for Christ. This was a physical battle. Ours is a spiritual battle. Their weapons were spears and swords and this kind of thing. Our weapons is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, love, truth. These are the weapons that we take out into the spiritual warfare that we're in the middle of. But the parallel that between the two things is physical battle that these men were in and the battle that we're in that's a spiritual battle. The character that's required in both of them are the same. That's the reason I think God lists these mighty men of David. Again, Adina was a man who was willing to continue to stand and fight for God and his people when the odds of success were humanly impossible. His responsibility was faithfulness, not whether something was possible or impossible. The fact of the matter is, for any of us, who want to be great for God. I hope that's in all of our hearts. Desire to do great things for God. To be great for God in this world and in our generation. It's only as we're willing to make a stand for God in the middle of impossible odds that God is able to perform this kind of a miracle. It's only as we're pushed beyond our own resources that we will ever discover His We will never know what a dino knew and felt, not even in the spiritual realm, unless there's that willingness to when we're pushed to our own end of our own resources and beyond. We're then willing to discover the resources of God to continue to be faithful to him in that situation and then watch what he does. The Bible says that as Christians, we're called to make a stand for God. In the midst of a hostile multitude in this world. This world is hostile toward Christians. I was reading in World Magazine a couple of weeks ago. A brother just like us was over in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. You think about how, much, how many missionaries came out of Scotland in the last 200 years. And the great heritage that it has in Christ. And he was sharing the gospel with people on the street. A homosexual couple came up to him and asked him what he thought of what the Bible said about homosexuality. And he told them in very loving, calm terms. They had him arrested. Ended up having to pay some enormous fine to get back to the United States where his father was dying and, uh, and tend to him. But the, the world is hostile to the God that we serve and the standard that, that he holds of right and wrong in this, in this world. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Don't take it personally. It's just because we're making a stand for Christ. This goes on. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Isn't that wonderful? Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in this whole context of spiritual warfare and standing and no matter what the odds are. He said, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, to stand. 
That's what we're to do. We are to stand. And then that's our part, and it's God's part to make sure that we're standing at the end of the battle. So I just, I love these guys so much. And so here is a dino. And then after him was Eliezer, the son. It's not Dodo and it's not Dudu. And though they do call people that have David. But anyway, they call people Dudu is a nickname in Israel. So, you know, you tell them, don't use it over here when you come over here. But use it freely there. It has a different connotation. But it's actually Doda is how it's translated. And so here's Eliezer, the son of Doda, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, who, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. And so here's this great battle against the Philistines, the perennial enemy of the children of Israel. Now, we don't read much. We just read about David's victories, his armies. It was just like they just went in and just... Beat everybody that attacked him. Some of those battles were in some pretty iffy territory. And God was going to give them the victory, but it just didn't look like it from the front. And here's one that put the, just put the fear of the situation. And these men, these great battle-hardened men with David, they began to flee and retreat in the face of what they were facing, the odds. And then, as this was going on, the men of Israel had retreated. This Eliezer, he arose and then this is just crazy, but I love it. Notice the word, an attack. This guy did more than stand. He attacked then the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. They kind of left him out there. And he killed so many people, they came back just to strip the wealth of all of the bodies. And so here he is standing there. He looks at this situation. Men that he knows by name and respects are, are, are retreating. And for him, retreat before the enemy is absolutely unacceptable. In his mind, the only thing that's worthy of, of him in this army of Israel having the God they have isn't merely to stand. And, and it certainly wasn't to retreat, but then to attack the enemy of God and then Watch how God would confirm his promises concerning his defeat of Israel's enemies if they would do that. So he's, he's unwilling to have a standoff uh, with evil. And, uh, and he's certainly not interested in any kind of a defeat at the hands of the Philistines. That was an affront in his mind. And so his mindset was to attack. And spiritually speaking, that's to be our mindset as well. Caesarea Philippi. I'm not just preaching a sermon here tonight or just saying this is what this is what people like him say about the Bible. Talking about our lives tonight. How we're conducting ourselves as Christians, as representatives of God in this world, this spiritual warfare that we're in the middle of. The world hangs in the balance right now. We know God is in control. There's a need for this kind of man and woman. And the spiritual warfare God has called us to. And so here is this. Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, well, some of them say that you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're uh, one of the uh, prophets. And Jesus then said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus said to Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he said, I say that you are Peter, and on this rock of your confession of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail or withstand it. And the idea is this gate of this great walled city of the devil. And that if God's people, us as Christians, are moving on the offensive in our advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God, no stronghold of the devil can withstand that advance. That's a promise of Jesus to us. But it's so easy for us to just get used to retreating and retreating and retreating every time the enemy attacks. I just want to ask you in the privacy of your heart tonight, is that your life? That you have just fallen into just the habit he attacks, you don't even withstand anymore. You don't fight him anymore. You're so used to retreating, it's the first thing that you do. And the Bible says, by the power of the Spirit, all that can change tonight. Some of us are content just to stand. We say, well, it's, in, on my watch, it's not going to get any worse than it was in terms of things degrading spiritually. That's not good enough. And the light of the promises we've been given as Christians. What Christ has called us to do is that by virtue of the fact that I have encumbered the earth for 55 years, and I don't know how, for how much longer, there should be advancement of the kingdom of God on some level. And that's true to be true of all of us as Christians. And we can just kind of dumb down into living consistently for decades something far less than that. And so that's the standard that Jesus gives us. Now, I think it's very interesting to notice that God wants us to know that as this man fought in the battle, Eliezer, that his hand clave to the sword. He fought for so long that his hand cramped around the handle of the sword and he couldn't tell where his hand ended and where the sword began. They just became uh, one, just cramped right under there. There are records in ancient <clears throat> times of fighting that uh, took place and records of hand-to-hand -hand combat, close combat like Eliezer was in, where the hand had so cramped around the handle of the sword that a soldier couldn't release it on his own. He'd get done and walk off the battlefield and he'd drag that sword, but he could not open his hand to let it go. They'd have to soak it in hot water for it to begin to release, or someone would have to pry his fingers off of his uh, sword. It's reported of uh, uh, Skanderberg in his battle against the Turks that he fought with such earnestness that blood burst out of his lips as he was slaying them. It's the intensity of the battle that Eliezer found himself in. The application for us, and I love the applications of these three men, is like Eliezer, we are to so hold on to our sword, the sword of God's word in battle, that our hand becomes one with a, a, it. Till the word of God becomes a part of us. It becomes an extension of us in this spiritual battle that we're in the middle of twice in the New Testament, the word of God is likened to a sword. And I think it's intended to draw back to this as well as other places in the scripture. 
to help us understand the spiritual lesson of the passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are to know the Word of God. And thank you for coming out on Sunday nights. I don't thank you to... I think it's it's what we ought to be as Christians, but it's disappearing. To know the Bible from one end to the other. Some people get attacked by the devil and they've got to pull out a toothpick or a pocket knife. It's all the Word of God that they know. They've known God for decades. Not right. We need to have a full-fledged sword in our hand, a whole Bible that we can use in battle. Remember Jesus when Satan attacked him with temptation three times? Jesus answered that temptation each time with the Word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. And each time he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. But he met the attack of the enemy with the Word of God. And we should, as Christians, know our Bible so well or to the degree that we do know it, when something in life occurs, some attack of the enemy, that we can say, thus saith the Lord, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, and answer that temptation or that attack with the enemy of the enemy with the Word of God. And to have that become such a characteristic of our daily lives... That the Word of God, we recognize, is like a part of us. It's like the sword in Eliezer's hand. It's an extension of us. We're so used to using it on a daily basis. And we're going to need, we need to have that kind of thing in the hour, this hour in human history when God's called us to make a stand for Him. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this? And then to say what the Bible says about this in any situation. Until that word, that sword is never out of our hand. It's just as is familiar with us as if it was an extension of our own bodies. I don't want to get into a whole big thing about how illiterate in general the body of Christ in the United States of America is becoming terms of the Bible, but it's just flat out scary. And it's wrong. And I exhort myself, but I'll tell you there's going to be a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders and a lot of churches that are not going to have a very fun time when they stand before the Lord and give an accounting for how faithful they were to their responsibility to declare the whole counsel of God to God's people. Paul said with a sense of accomplishment to the Ephesian elders, I have not failed to to teach you and to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The importance of it. You can't change the trends in the body of Christ in the United States of America. I can't change those trends. God, that's God's business. But what we can control is how well we know the Bible. And not just how well we know it, but how well, how often we practically put it into place and the use in our daily lives. We can control that and then model that victorious life and watch what God does with it. It really helps me 
maybe because I'm a boy, <clears throat> still growing up, <clears throat> never happens, does it, ladies? But it helps me to realize that every time I declare God's word into some attack of the enemy, that it's, it is on the spiritual level like plunging a sword into the enemy on the physical level is. It's always good to quote, maybe quote two, three, four verses. Then no, boy, that demon, I'll tell you, got four good plunges into him before he headed out of here. I don't know, I just like it. And after him was Shama, the son of uh, Aji, the Horahite. And the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a, a piece of ground full of lentils, barley, cheapest grain. They used it to feed animals, and when there were famines, people would eat it. You wouldn't eat it over wheat, so it's just like cattle fodder. But it was a grain and you could eat it. So there was, a, there was this uh, field. The Philistines had gathered together as a troop. They'd come into Israel, probably at, at, without a doubt at harvest time now, to even take this barley from the children of Israel. And when they came in, the people fled from the Philistines. But Shammah stationed himself in the middle of the field and he defended it and he killed the Philistines. And so the Lord brought about a great victory. So here's the Philistines, they're attacking Israel's food supply. The people start fleeing in all directions before the Philistines. And, and as the Philistines are rushing in and God's people are melting away in fear, Shammah just plants himself. I really like this guy. He just stationed himself in the middle of the field and he defended it and he just began to kill the Philistines. In Shammah's mind, that field didn't belong to the Philistines. It belonged to God. And it belonged to God's people. It had been given to them by God. It was a promise from uh, God. And if that field was going to be lost to the enemy on that day, it was going to be lost over his dead body. And so he stationed himself there. And as he did so, God gave a great victory. Now, as I said, barley was the least valuable grain of all. It was a poor man's food. And that tells us something. It tells us that Shama's actions here weren't determined by whether a field was wheat or whether it was barley. His actions aren't made on, on the basis of dollars and cents. This is a man of principle. He wouldn't care if it was wheat or barley or dirt clods. This belongs to God. This belongs to God's people. This does not belong to Philistines. And I'm not going to give it up without a fight. And putting my life in jeopardy to do it. Shama was a man of principle. No matter what the issue was in life, no matter what the value, the issue with this kind of man, and these are men and women that become great, the issue was right and wrong. Not the value of what was affected by the wrongdoing. We can come to a place where we'll only stand up against wrongdoing or corruption when it becomes big. We don't stand up to it on the basis of principle when it's small. 
And if we did that, I'm talking about us even as a nation, standing up and, and saying right is right, wrong is wrong, no matter what the issue is. And if we stand up for the godly principle and the righteous principle, when something is small, then it'll never become big. I think about I was seeing the news somewhere a few weeks ago. And it was a story about our national forests in California and how they are now uh, simply overrun by Mexican drug lords. That the marijuana crops that are being raised in our state and national forests, the value is in the billions of dollars. And we've got federal agents that take regular flights over the force and they track the size of the marijuana crops and the whole deal. And then we've got citizens that are hunters or campers, citizens of the United States that go too far off of a road. They don't know that the whole thing's been taken over. They're just silly Americans thinking that a national park that was paid for by their tax dollars belongs to them and they can go anywhere they want in it after they've paid the six dollar fee. That wasn't a cheap shot. It's just what it happens there. And they end up falling into booby traps or they get confronted and shot and killed. And I think to myself, where's the issue of principle? If I was the president of the United States or the governor of California, I'd have the National Guard in there in less than 24 hours. And we bring... Hack that stuff down and take it someplace and burn it. It's the principle of the thing. It's not, well, it's not bothering too many people yet. It's an issue of principle. And so there needs to be men and women that have that kind of, of principle, whether it's a big thing or a small thing. And if we make an issue of uh, uh, on the basis of principle things, when they're smaller, then they don't become a big thing. The Bible says we're to stand our ground as Christians on the basis of principle, godly principles. Not whether it's a big issue or a small issue in the eyes of the, uh, of the world, but just on the basis of what does the Bible say here and make a stand. And the Bible says we're, we are to stand our ground as Christians. I love the verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. It says, give no place to the devil fits this passage perfectly. The word no place, it means, or the word place there in that verse is, is the Greek word topos. And it means the smallest piece of ground. Don't give the devil an inch. Not of a wheat field, not of a barley field, not of any field. Much less a blood-bought life. And so, here is this man who understood that fields are worth fighting and dying for and uh, in terms of the principle that's involved here and how it reflects uh, upon God. And I'll tell you, God help a nation and God help a church if we forget that willingness to spend our lives for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world and even to be willing to lay our lives down for that advancement. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take himself let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and to follow after me. We're already dead men and women. 
Our lives have already been given to Christ. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead in terms of self-will, my plans for my life, how long I live, all these things. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the attitude that ends up being great in the the spiritual realm. And I think how we need men and women, uh, uh, godly men and women of principle today to make a stand for righteousness because it's the right thing to do. And then see what God will do with that battle. And so, the top three that are listed there, we'll get through this, by the way, and we'll get through before 9 o'clock. So, those of you, relax. Because I have another gear. That's my compound low. And uh, we'll see what we can do. Then three of the 30 men came down at harvest time. So, to give us kind of an idea of the bravery of of, uh, an example, probably, of these three men. The three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and they came to David at the cave of Adullam. So David is out in the Judean wilderness, uh, out toward En Gedi area. And uh, the troop of the Philistines had invaded the land of Israel and was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, which is uh, near Bethlehem in Jerusalem. And David, so now a long way away from Bethlehem and his hometown, and David was in the stronghold, those caves that are out there that they were living in, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And as David's in this condition, he said with longing, he's just kind of thinking out loud and, but it, and, and desiring out loud, and it kind of comes out, he said, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, you remember he was raised there. And he got the water for the sheep there in Bethlehem. So he knew that the well that's right there at that particular gate, he'd been there a million times. The water's so clear and so clean and, and all of that. And, and he's probably not just wanting a drink of water. This is at a, at a time, harvest time, when it would have been very hot and very dry in Israel. But he's probably thinking of simpler times in his life. Man, when I was a kid and I could go to Bethlehem and just go right to that thing and get a drink of water whenever I wanted. And here I am an adult. Look how complicated life has become. I wish it was that simple again. Well, we all do sometimes. But that's, in heaven it will be very simple. And so this was his longing. And so the three mighty men, out of a love for David, a desire to bless him, they broke through the camp of the Philistines They got to that well there in Bethlehem that was by the gate and uh, they uh, took uh, water that they drew from there and they brought it to David as just a gift to him. I mean, it really, really challenged me. What am I willing to do for the out of my love for the son of David? So here's this great love and respect they had for David. Anything they could do to bless his heart, they would do it just like our heart toward the Lord. And when they presented it to David, David, he wouldn't drink it. But he poured it out to the Lord. He was communicating, God, you're the only one that's worthy of this kind of sacrifice. I won't accept this to myself. I offer what they did as an expression of love to me. I offer that to you. He's a great, great man. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he wouldn't drink it. And these were done by the three mighty men. And so... David here showed that he was as concerned for their life and valued their life as much as they valued 
his. Now, here's the second three. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab. Remember, Abishai wanted to take Shimei's head off a couple times. Just let me get over there and we'll stop this stone throwing and disrespect and dust and all. Well, Shimei was a tough guy. I mean, not Shimei, but Abishai, brother of Joab, tough guy. And uh, it was a good thing David restrained him and he respected David or or Shimei. um, Well, I'll leave it to your minds. So he was chief among the second three. And he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. So we don't know. All, I mean, there, there's, so, there's so much military history that's been just covered as we've just gone through talking about the spiritual aspects, which is the focus of the Bible concerning the kingdom of David. But here's just one tough guy lifted his spear, killed 300 men in battle, and, and as a result attained to this second three. He was not, um, was he not most honored of this three? So he was like number four on the list, top of this three. And therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the, the son of a valiant man, a valiant man from Kabzeel, who he, who had done many deeds, he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. So you just picture these guys. Man, all hair and beards. They just look like a lion. So they just got, you know, sometimes you can, some, some people, you know, are hairier than others. So there's some people, if they didn't do a little work, there'd just be a couple of eyes right here. And just hair comes out of the forehead and raises all the way up under here and that kind of stuff. So these guys were, man, you saw them coming in battle. It's just a, He's just like half lion, half man coming at me, scare you to death, uh, even if they didn't have a weapon. And so he killed them. They were heroes in Moab, uh, brave guys. And then he had also gone down, <clears throat> killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. I just like that. <laughs> he killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Talk about difficulty factors. I give him a ten. So you fall into a pit or you jump down into a pit where there's a lion in there on a snowy day. That's a hungry lion. You don't get a lion more dangerous than that, more hungry than that. He just went down there and took care of business on a snowy day. <laughs> then he killed an Egyptian. And I like this, a spectacular man. Oh. He killed an Egyptian a spectacular man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and so he went to him with a stick. He just had a staff, a shepherd's tool. And he wrestled that spear out of the Egyptian's hand. He killed him with his own spear. Take that. I mean, this is just tough guys. And these things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and he won a name among the, mighty, the three mighty men, the next three. And he was uh, more honored than the 30 that are listed here in just a moment. But he didn't attain to the top three. And David appointed him over his guard. And so these three men and uh, fascinating to read about their exploits. And I think it's very interesting there in verse 23 to recognize that not everybody was equal in strength and not everybody was equally brave. 
There was a top three. There was a next three. And then there was the 30. And before I get to that, we got to, before I forget, it's very important. You say you only listed two out of the three. That's all that's identified in the passage. Which has caused most people to uh, speculate that the third person, third greatest in that second group of three was probably Joab. But because he murdered uh, Abner and he murdered the other uh, Jewish general uh, in cold blood and then was involved against David's uh, uh, command in the, in the death of uh, um, Absalom, that he probably attained to that group, but then his name is left out. And I think it's as good an explanation as any. But in verse 23 here, I think in the cult, because of the culture that we live in, and there could be this kind of jealousy even within the body of Christ. Not everybody's called to do the same great things in the body of Christ. Not everybody's going to be equally great in the world. It's funny to read, you know, different things about uh, what goes on in certain parts of the United States of America where we're trying to make everybody equal. Not everybody's equal. Not everybody's equally smart. Not everybody's equally strong. Not everybody is equally inventive. It's just the way that it is. And so we say we're threatened and it's going to hurt children's self-esteem if they don't think they're as good as everybody else. And so we have little league, uh, little leagues that don't keep score. Because we'd hate the emotional scarring that would occur on a child whose team went 0 and 16. But it might produce within the right child the desire to go 2 and 14 the next year and do better. And so there's this whole idea of trying to know grades in the schools because we don't want to traumatize students by getting a D or an F. And so there's no grades. We just give them the learning and then they take out and, and we don't want to make them think that they're less capable in these areas than other people. Yes, they are. Yes, we are. You can, you can try and convince me that I'll be as outstanding a middle linebacker in the NFL as the current middle linebackers in the NFL and you're just setting me up to get very badly hurt. They are greater. I don't, I don't look with any jealousy toward Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. They created what they created and they've become billionaires in, in the double digits, times double digits. And I look at that and I say, good for them. I want to live in a world where Excellence is acknowledged. Extraordinariness is, is rewarded. There's nothing wrong with that. And the reason that we don't need to be jealous in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm on this level is even Jesus talked about in his parables where the master left and he gave one five talents and he gave another two and he gave another one. It wasn't all equal. If he's given me two talents, 
I don't have to do what the five talent person has done. I can't do that. I don't have the gifting and the calling that they have. But I can do what I was supposed to do. This, what, the way that God has set things up is all of us can be the very best that we've been called to be. We can, what, what somebody else is or isn't doesn't have any bearing or hinder me from being fully what God has called me to be. And so here's this great thing. I just love it in the scriptures. Not everything is equal, but we can all end up equally rewarded by being fully faithful to what God has called us individually to do. Now, this other list, the list of the 30 or 37 here in verses 24 through 39, I could punish you by trying to read uh, through those for you. But it is, there's a couple names to notice in verse 34. Uh, at the end there, it talks about Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, and uh, Eliam was the father of um, Bathsheba, uh, who David committed adultery with. And then we see from this, this verse, we realize that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, and it explains a lot about his actions and what he was going through. You see down in verse 39, Uriah the Hittite is listed. That was Bathsheba's uh, husband who was put to death uh, by David. His death was arranged. And so the fact that he was among David's, you know, top, uh, you know, 40 men in this whole military uh, probably made David, you know, his betrayal of Uriah even even harder to live with for the rest of his life. But and there are other names of interest in there, but those were sufficient for us tonight. And again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. Now, in this passage, we're told here in verse 1 that the Lord moved David uh, to do this, the numbering of the people, in order to express his anger against Israel. Israel in general. In the parallel passage in First Corinthians or First Chronicles, rather, Corinthians, First Chronicles chapter twenty-one, verse one, gives us a little further revelation on this when it tells us that it was Satan who tempted uh, David uh, to number Israel, and we're told there now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So God moved David to number the people only in the sense that He allowed the devil the room to tempt David. David ends up sinning here, not because God forced him to, but because of the sin in his own heart that God knew the devil would quickly spot and take advantage of because God allows the devil to test my faith or to test my obedience doesn't make him responsible if I fall. And so that's kind of sets the foundation here a little bit for what's happening. One other thing that's important to understand about the chapter, because I think when you read through it, you just look at it, you can look at it and say, Man, why in the world did God hammer the children of Israel and 70,000 people dead and all just because David did what he did? And it looks like other people bearing the consequences of David's sin. That's not what's happening in the chapter uh, at all. And verse 1 tells us that. In this chapter, we have a plot. Uh, that is, <clears throat> the main plot is God's dealing with Israel. And then there's a subplot, which is God's dealing with David. And uh, I'm going to spend most of our time talking about the subplot concerning David. But we've got to give a couple of moments here to the larger picture. 
In verse 1, we're told that God was angry with the nation of Israel as a whole. There's something about their immediate past or their present that required God's judgment. Whatever sin they had committed against him, it was a great, great sin. And it forces this very gracious God to chasten them with great severity. Now, there's some speculation about what could have been the sin that was so great among so many of the children of the children of Israel that forced this judgment. It could have been this might have been a judgment against the uh, those in Israel who joined Absalom in his rebellion against David. That was a rebellion against God. It wasn't just a rebellion against David. David was God's king. And so God, here you have now a spirit of rebellion that is in the land from Dan to Beersheba, the north to the south. And God looks at that and says, this is going to be trouble for Solomon when he becomes king. And I'm going to deal with that rebellious spirit that was, was not chastened out of God's people when David was restored uh, as the king. And uh, so this uh, this could have been the great offense against God. It might have uh, easily been some kind of sin or wickedness that was being practiced in the land just because David walked with God and David loved God and David led the nation in the worship of the Lord didn't doesn't mean that everybody else in the nation was walking with God. You read the Psalms of David during his reign and he talks about the wicked and he talks about how many people are trying to destroy him politically and spiritually and how many people are rising up and speaking against him and all. He had a lot of enemies, not just in the foreign lands, but even within Israel uh, itself. And so God is stepping in here in some way. Excuse me, because he wants to remove uh, some influence and maybe it was an influence uh, like that. So whatever's going on here, there's something that God looks at and says, this requires my judgment and a very, very uh, severe and and righteous judgment. Now, while God desires to bring this chastening upon the nation of Israel as a whole, He's going to kill two birds with one stone. How many of you know God can kill two birds with one stone? He's usually knocking about six things out at a time in my life because the list is about 3,000 items long and he wants to get it half done before I get to heaven. So he's doing a lot of stuff all at the same time. So he wants to judge Israel for their sin, but then he also wants to come in and address a sinful attitude that had crept into David's heart. And so he does that by simply allowing Satan to tempt David in this area of sin that he had been harboring in his life. And so now we tear into it. So the king, uh, David, said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, he said, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, and I want you to number the people that I may know the number of the people. And so we're going to see a little bit later down in verse nine that this was not Joab understood this to be a census of not just numbering everybody in the land, but to number able bodied soldiers. It's a military census that's going on here. And uh, and so that was what uh, was to be uh, numbered. And so here is 
uh, here is the uh, command that he gives now to Joab. Joab immediately protests and he says to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are. I mean, I, I don't know what their number is, David, but may they be a hundred times what they are and may the eyes of my Lord see it. But why does my Lord, uh, the king, desire this thing? Why in the world do we need to be numbering uh, these people? Now, David, here's what David is doing. And it is a and here's the sin he's committing. And it. Because it happens late in his life, it really is a warning to all of us. I mean, even the most spiritual Christians have to watch out for this. What has happened in David's mind, God has given him such favor and such success that he's got a lot of power. He has a lot of material wealth as a result of his position and all. And then his mind now. The security of the nation, his personal security, is based upon the size of Israel's army rather than based upon the greatness of God. So he begins to look at his bank account. He begins to look at his assets and his liabilities and all. begins to look in the physical realm to come to a conclusion about how secure the nation of Israel is. The problem is, is the nation would have been a nothing nation except for what God had done. God had made that nation great. Because God had made that nation great, he should have received the glory that he deserved for making them great. But it's a funny thing that can happen after a while in our lives, especially if we begin to get a little bit of material resources. We know that God did it, but then pretty soon, I mean, if we were honest, we'd look and say, I consider myself to be secure in the context of the hostility of this world and the current economic conditions, not supremely on the basis of the fact that Jehovah is my God, but on the basis of the value of my house, the size of the investment and the size of what is in savings. And so that's a very subtle temptation that occurs, and it's dishonoring to the Lord. To, to view myself or to view my security as a Christian is based upon some physical, material thing. Number one, it is folly, because surely we have all learned in some measure in the last three years, and I don't think we're done learning it in human history, We've learned that in this fallen world, overnight, a person's entire personal wealth can disappear and be gone. A medical condition can eat the entire thing up. None of us can enjoy any sense of security in this world if we think our security is found in material things. Because it can be gone in an instant. The second problem with this kind of thinking in our lives when it is it exists is it's dishonoring to the Lord. It's so goofy, this subtle thing. That here is God who can make us great in some sense. And then the things that he adds to our lives is just blessings 
then begins to be the very thing that starts to compete with uh, God for lordship in our heart. And so to view anything in my life as a Christian as being my source of security, I look at that number, I look at this statement, and I say, okay, I'm all right, rather than the promises of God that dishonors our God. He has made us what we are. We are secure because of Him and because of His promises. And so David gets the whole thing backwards here. He's going to have to learn the hard way here, here that where true security is found. Nevertheless, <clears throat> the king's word prevailed against Joab and even against the captains of the army. Even David's officers, these mighty men, stepped up and said, David, what are you doing here? They knew what he was doing. They knew he was looking, let's number our military, and then we'll have a sense of how strong we are as a nation. And in essence, they're saying to him, David, we've been following you for 40 years. You're the one that taught us that God is our security. You're the one that taught us that God has made Israel great. And now here in this final hour in your life, you're going to model something entirely different to us. And you're going to give this public decree to number the armies of Israel. So you are now modeling to the citizens of this nation that our security is in the greatness of our military rather than the greatness of our God. David, you taught us that 50 years ago. That God was the reason for our greatness. What's happening here? But he couldn't be deterred. This is how strong it was in his heart. And therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. He's the king. We're going to do it. And they crossed over the Jordan and they camped at Aroer on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad toward Jazer. So they go off into modern day Jordan because Jews were settled there. And then they came to Gilead and they came to the land of Tatim Hadshi and they came to Dan Ja'an and around to Sidon. So they're going counterclockwise from Jerusalem to the uh, east and, and all the way up to the north and then the south and back up to Jerusalem. They came to the stronghold of Tyre, to the cities of the Hivites, the Canaanites. And then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. When they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. That's how long it took them to do the census. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there was in Israel, the upper uh, ten tribes, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. So we see it's a military census. And of Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin in the south, were 500,000 men. And then David, when the numbers were reported to him, his heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. He realized I have modeled a terrible thing before this nation. And now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity. I knew better, Lord, of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning... The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things in terms of judgment. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Choice number one. 
Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Choice number two. Or shall you take... Shall there be three days' plague in your land? Now, that, those, are your, those are your three choices. Now, consider and see what answer I should take back to him, to the Lord who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. He said, please let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Let God make the decision of which of those three, for his mercies are great. Just don't let me fall into the hand of man, because the hand of man uh, is uh, not so uh, merciful. And so the Lord then sent the plague upon Israel from the morning uh, till the appointed time, uh, covering a period of the three days. And then uh, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men uh, of, uh, of the people died. And my, uh, I, again, this isn't an indiscriminate uh, killing or some kind of a random judgment, but it's specifically aimed at some cause of displeasure uh, uh, that was abiding within the nation that God wanted to have removed. So he's being very, uh, he's got a very careful scalpel with which he's operating here through this plague. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, now this plague is going to go into Jerusalem, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. So he brought an end to the plague. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor uh, of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Now, David here, and this is very key to understand related to the chapter David confesses his guilt in numbering the people. He calls it wickedness. But he declares the people innocent, and he asks that God's, the judgment for his decision fall upon his house only. Now, this is very, very commendable of David, but he doesn't know the full picture. What he doesn't realize is that the people were guilty as well, and God was, uh, again, killing two birds with, uh, with one stone. And so this is the plea that he makes. God then instructs him. Gad came <clears throat> that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord. Uh, and the Lord chooses the place that this is going to happen on the threshing floor uh, of Aruna, the Jebusite. And so uh, the, wherever this uh, threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite is, it's in the vicinity of ancient uh, Jerusalem. And it is higher than the ancient city of David. For those of you who have been to Israel, you realize the ancient city of David set uh, well below what is now the Temple Mount today, which is the location of the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And so David had to go up to the high, a higher point on Mount Moriah to go there. And so we know, uh, we know ultimately that Solomon builds the temple there in, uh, on, on that uh, threshing floor and on that, <clears throat> on that platform there. And so uh, David went, uh, and, and uh, according to the, uh, 
uh, word of, of Gad. He went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And so Aruna went out and he showed respect for the king and he, he bowed down before him with his face to the ground. And Aruna says, why has my Lord uh, come to his servant? And David said, in order to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord in order that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And so a, uh, a threshing floor was a flat rock surface that they could separate the chaff from the wheat and it had to be in a high place where the wind could blow through and the chaff would blow away and the wheat would be left and the whole process and all. And so this is exactly... And because it was a, a large flat area, it was a perfect place to build and to build this altar to the Lord. So David uh, says, I've come to buy this from you. And Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here, take my oxen for the burnt sacrifice and the threshing implements and yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. Let me just give it to you. And so whatever will bring an end to this plague, whatever will be helpful to you, it's all yours. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Whatever you need to do to bring an end to this plague, you can take it. You don't have to pay me. And then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. David said, I don't want to take it from you because what I want to offer to the Lord, I want that to cost me something. I don't want to. It would have been unfair to Aruna to just take this from him and use it in this way. But David said it would it would reflect poorly upon God if I just gave God something that didn't cost me anything. He says, no, I want only to offer God something that costs me something reminds Reminds us of that woman who is at the, at the treasury in the New Testament when Jesus was watching all of the people doing their giving. And many people were coming with great fanfare and giving large amounts into the, the receptacles there at, at, for uh, giving at the, at the uh, temple. And here's this woman comes and she gives two mites. I mean, just not even a full penny in value. And Jesus called the disciples over and he said, she's given more than all of them. Because of the level of sacrifice that the giving represented. And that's how God measures the giving is what it costs us to give. And so David said, no, I don't want to offer anything to God that doesn't require some sacrifice of me. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there, that particular place that God chose, verse 18, there he built an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And so <clears throat> uh, this end of this incident in, in David's life. Now, in, even though this was a uh, kind of another low spot in David's life, I mean, he, uh, a, a difficult chapter... Uh, in his life and in really in the history of the nation of Israel. God, because he's gracious, he, he works it all together for good. Because later on in history, it would be on this very, very site of the threshing floor of Aruna on Mount Moriah that the temple would be built by Solomon. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1. 
It's interesting that we're told twice in the passage, this chapter, verse 21, verse 25, that it was there in that location that the plague was withdrawn. So what God intended, he intended Mount Moriah to be known in Jewish history as the place where he stopped the plague in response to the sacrifice of a king. And all of it is a picture of what would follow on that very Mount Moriah a thousand years after David's time and just a stone's throw to the north when a greater king, that is God the Father, would stop a greater plague, the plague of sin, by offering a greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of his son to die on the cross at Calvary in order to bring an end to the plague of sin in human history. The imagery is beautiful. And even on this Mount Moriah before these events, it was in this same place that God spoke to Abraham and told Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, to offer him on this same location of Mount Moriah, offer him up to the Lord. And of course, the Lord provided himself a sacrifice rather than Abraham offering up his son. God has provided all a picture of what the father, the words are amazing. God speaks to Abraham and says, take thy son, thy only son. And it's like, why are you rubbing this in? And it's just a picture of what was the, the heart of God the father and the sacrifice that he made in the sending of his son to die on the cross for our sins. Beautiful, beautiful picture. All of the scriptures testify to Christ. Make us love him more. Make us praise him more. Let's stand together and we'll pray.